All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, this is uh, Joshua, also known as Yashu. And today we are tuning into TLY Talks, episode four. And in this uh, very unique day, my, our special guest is an executive producer for Christina Jones and Kamiko Ishizaka. He's the sole reason the songs on You Were My Compass by Christina Jones got written in the first place. He has over 30 years in the music industry and a side career in tech and also an experienced web and po- like web slash podcaster as he hosts his own show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I give you uh, Robert Douglas. So uh, Robert Douglas, how are you doing today? Hey, great, Yashu. Thanks. And thanks for the great intro and for having me on the show. That's uh, very great. So I'd like to get it started for a bit too. Um, so where are you from? And tell us more about the place that you're from also. I'm a Midwesterner. I was born and raised in Michigan. And if you want to know where and you're watching the video, it's the intersection of 127 and I-94. It's called Jackson. And when I traveled around the country as a young person, then I was always from Jackson, Michigan, which is the home of the largest state penitentiary, which is what we're known for. So I was always known as, you know, the guy from the prison town. True. I think like, you know, like even with prison towns too, like they do have like an, in- an interesting culture in that sense too, because um, in television and like in movies, they talk about like the remnants of, you know, growing up in those prison towns where only oh, yeah. people who work in prisons are like CEOs or people who work in the diners and like hotels and stuff like that. Like Oz for like one example, like they had it like in upstate New York. And I think one of the main characters lived in Attica at the time too and then you also have like famous ones um like one like the one in Colorado and then you have Alcatraz and then like a variety of like other ones too so we're not as famous as Alcatraz but it's 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 absolutely true that that prison town culture actually permeates everyday life my father taught in the prison there taught music um and you know he would explain about getting in there and meeting with the inmates and getting out of there and how it's not quite like going to you know school every day uh, it's a little bit different and my next door neighbor uh my best friend when i was growing up his father actually worked for the prison as well so pris- the, the the prison as an employer and a, as a presence in the community was always felt yeah exactly and um would you say that you know like growing up it was a a good experience uh, that you had or would it be like my personal childhood growing up it was delightful I have the best parents on earth (laughs) no doubt um and you know usually every person too like uh when they deal like with like growing up you know they have like an initial goal or an idea that they have so do you like back at that time did you have like anything that you wanted to do like when you wanted to grow up for a career or like for a job Oh, definitely I decided really early on what I wanted to do, uh, and it was music. Uh, I was 10 years old, um, which is, you know, in, in, in the world of real famous musicians, 10 years is already pretty much over the hill, right, for getting started. But that's when I got started as a French horn player, and I decided very quickly that I wanted to do that. And uh, in fact, I did. I studied French horn throughout high school and into college. Uh, and that's what actually brought me to Germany, uh, that and my love interest uh, brought me to Germany. And I played French horn and orchestras here in Germany before moving on to my tech career, which is now 20 years ago. 
I'm feeling very old with all these decades that we're throwing around 30 years in the music industry, 20 years in the tech industry. It's like me, who me? <laughs> I'm not that old. Oh, wait, I am. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Like initially for me, I wanted to be like a teacher actually, you know, because, you know, going to school, you know, you're only exposed to like what you see in life and like what people do. And like, that was like being a teacher and it was actually like very interesting too, because I actually like low key wanted to be like an English teacher because I do do feel like, you know, it's kind of simple, you know, you understand stuff, you teach books, you teach grammar. And then like when you get that weird reality, when they tell you like, Hey, like it might be like different because of like the cutbacks and the money you start to like realize a lot of other stuff too. So that's what got me into like studying like other aspects in life, like law and crime and all that type of stuff too. And then also my initial interest, like music and podcasting. So, and here we are like the music and podcasting type of thing. Yeah. Well, what you said is true. You, um, you want to do what you see. And in that respect, I had a very strong father figure present in my life who is a musician. And uh, he and I actually played in multiple ensembles together. And he was a conductor. And I played in the ensembles he conducted. And all of his friends that he brought over uh, to family meetings and everything were always musicians. But it was always in the um, kind of the classical scene. So he and I played in the local uh, symphony orchestra together, the Jackson Symphony. We sat right next to each other, in fact, French horn trombone. It was pretty amazing uh, that we got to play together so much. And it's absolutely true that you want to do what you see. I, I remember, for example, as a very young child, uh, he would be rehearsing with his brass quintet in our living room. And I just lay in the middle of it and just soak up the sound and absolutely that influenced me and pushed me in that direction and uh later in life i also identified a very strong urge and desire to make him proud through my musical achievements which i was like okay i'm glad i know that's there now when that little voice is urging me to do things i can understand where it's coming from and understand and process it better and make my decisions with a little more self-awareness but the it was all very much uh you know his influence that pushed me into that career he didn't push me he was very hands-off and he let me make my own decisions but i had that feeling that he was really proud when i chose music and you know it was obviously a wonderful connection for us to play together and be in the same ensembles together yeah no exactly and I don't know if that was like your initial like first introduction to music or have you ever had like a certain thing that like introduced you to like making music or being in love with like music in general? Oh, yeah, I, I, I have. I have. I know my origin story. Uh, there are two, actually. Uh, and I think they're both worth telling. Uh, the first origin story that I have is that we went uh, we, uh, back when I grew up in the old days, we didn't have like VCRs. Okay. I predate VCRs. That's how old I am. <laughs> so if you wanted to go see a, a recorded visual image of any kind, you needed a movie projector and we didn't have one. So we'd go to the local library and watch movies. They'd have the library would host movie events where everybody would sit around the projector, spinning this thing, making the movie up on the, on, on the wall. And they'd brought, they'd advertise the times when that was going to happen, you know? So we saw a movie called uh, the White Seal. If anybody out there has seen The White Seal, um, 
great for you, you're old like me, or you saw it on YouTube. I saw it on YouTube recently. You can find the White Seal and they use the music from Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. And after we saw the White Seal as a child, I was five or six. I said, what's that music? Or my dad said, hey, that music from that movie that you just liked, I've got that on a record at home. And I ended up falling in love with Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. They put it on when I was falling asleep. So imagine the, the turntable and the stereo on the ground floor. And I was up in my bedroom and they would blast it as loud as it would go so that I could hear it up in the upstairs bedroom. And if you know Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, you know that like the fourth movement is a storm and Beethoven wrote a storm that comes with trombones and drums and all hell breaks loose. And my goal was always as a child to stay awake in bed until that storm came. Sometimes I made it, sometimes I fell asleep more in the pastoral scenes that come before that. That's origin story number one. Origin story number two actually predates that. So when I was a high schooler, so later in time, I went to Hong Kong on a band tour. And in Hong Kong, I bought my very first Walkman and my very first cassette tapes. And the, those were the first conscientious decisions that I was ever able to make as a, uh, as a being about what music I listened to myself, my music, okay? And I didn't know what to buy. I was in a, a cassette store trying to buy walk uh, tapes for my Walkman and I didn't know any of it, okay? So I picked a couple things. I think I got Linda Ronstadt, Lionel Richie, and... Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. I had no idea what I was doing, okay? Not bad choices looking back at it. So I was, remember, I was away from home on a band tour, very far away from home, China. And I put Bridge Over Troubled Water on. And I swear to you, from the first note, I was reduced to an emotional pool of jelly, just crying from homesickness. And I couldn't understand it. The other two tapes were fine, but they didn't have that effect on me. And I didn't really know this music, okay? This was not what we had in our ambience. We had Beethoven six in our ambience, right? So I was here listening, you know, Bridge Over Trouble Water, just crying, crying, crying. And it took me a long time to figure it out, but it actually turns out that's what my mom sang when we were like nursing and she had that album and it broke later and we didn't have it later in life and we had listened to this as a, a mother child pair in my natal days and it all came back to me so that's the kind of connection that i had with music oh huh. yeah no exactly and i think for me too like i wasn't really as like crazy like listening to like music that back then but um i'd say like um maybe like one of my first oceans like was just like listening like in the car too like like whatever like they play like on like the radio or like their um like cassette like uh, their cassettes uh stuff so usually they play like more like traditional music from back home so like um i'm ethiopian so they oh, okay. play like a lot of like ethiopian based music you know like amhara like type music so I'd hear that um, they'd play Amazing. like some like some you know like certain mixes like you know like from the like early two thousand so they would play like Outcast they would play like Share and all that like uh, do you believe like that song right there like was like listening to that almost like every single time in the car and I'd say like you know uh, like some Jennifer Lopez like Alicia Keys and then. 
it kind of like resonated with me like as I got older like I would initially like memorize that sound from somewhere you know so like usually like when I had the access to like the internet like as I got older you know I type like the lyrics or I type the song and then it would like it would be interesting like hey I just found out like a song that I listened to from a while back you know I found out the name now so the recognition and just you know the understanding of like beat patterns like lyrics you know just vocal ranges like it hits onto you like as you get older like as the brain starts to like develop as well so yeah I think you're onto something there. In fact, I have a, a, a theory that is non-scientific, but it's my theory that uh, uh, we have very strong musical impressions from very early in life that basically set us up to have pretty fixed taste universes. And that I don't think many people actually truly break out of those taste universes that are created for them early in life. Yes, we go explore. I learned to like jazz. I learned to like opera. I learned that I'm really not such a hip hop fan. Okay. I, there's some that I do like some that I don't, but it's not my thing. Right. So uh, we never break out of these early influence taste things. And I think this is exactly why the record industry focuses so myopically on young people. It's like young people don't even necessarily have purchasing power when they're young, but they're making a long-term investment. If they market to preteens now, when they're in the formative years, when they're having those like first social proof experiences in junior high school, high school, and like later, those are their golden oldies, then the industry can sell to them for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think that people my age mostly go to Spotify, not to discover something they've never heard before. And they do, they, it's like an, it's like a, you know, it's an uh, exhibition piece. It's interesting to listen to once and then go away from. But mostly people are looking for things they either already know or stuff that sounds so much like it that it reminds them of it so that they can just like fill out that space that they like a little more densely. And I think this is interesting to understand as music producers because it's frustrating trying to get people to listen to your music. Most people won't do it. Most people won't listen, not really listen, not with an open heart where like, this could be my new favorite song. No, you're going to have to find young people for that. Really young people. And if you're not like accustomed to talking to teenagers, that's not young enough, right? You need those teenagers or younger. So I think this is as a, as a music producer, it, it took me a long time to realize that like, unless I was making music that sounded really like what somebody already liked as an old person, they're not going to listen to it. They'll never listen to it. No matter how much I talk it up, no matter how attractive I make it sound, no matter how of context I give them contextual, the backstory, the technical, no, forget it. Yeah. Nah, I definitely know what you mean. And, you know, I do realize this, you know, with people as they grow up too, like I know with some people, if they like listen to like some like favorite songs like back in like certain years like from a certain artist they're less likely to be re to be introduced to like a new artist because they think that you know it's all the same or you know it's just the similar sounds just the different person so like let's say if you have like a hit song back in like 2014 and 2015 and 
you like that specific artist or the specific artists that match into your style nowadays too like when you hear like new music or you try to get introduced to new music you most people do get reluctant to like listening to that artist because if i could listen to x y and z why would i listen to like abc like right there that's it's as you said like more that, that almost people. sounds like the lyrics of a song by the way abc <laughs> xyz yeah pretty much <laughs> so it's kind of like with some people like if like i'm like hip to new music sometimes too like right now like not as much as i used to like back then but i kind of get like hip to it here here and there so like whether it's like an unknown artist or from a specific artist from a specific scene you know i'll try my best to spread the word in that sense but then other people you know they're gonna listen to music you know that they've liked from like 2013 2014 2015 even some people like they'll still cling on to that whole 2000 sound. So even if you try to int- introduce someone to the likes of like a West Side Gun or a Conway, you know, like this is just like in hip hop perspective, they want to still listen to like 50 Cent and Eminem because if I could get it from them, like the lyrics, the styles, you know, the versatility, why should I listen to like a new act as well? So that's kind of like how to sum it up in that sense so yeah i had to chuckle while you were relating all that because you kept uh mentioning the years 2014 and 15 i was like way back then when i was 42 (laughs) 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 yeah way back then so long ago (laughs) no doubt um so aside from you know the band like stuff um did you have like any formal music uh training in like and what was the experience uh like for you like aside if from the band stuff if you like learned some other like yeah i learned how to play piano um and then of course i studied my major instrument the french horn and when you do that then you with both of those instruments, you learn to read music, you learn to sight read, you learn to play in ensembles with other people where they're reading music and you can basically sit down and read the music that's on the page together. I did not learn improvisation. So I didn't learn like the jazz approach to seeing uh, a lead sheet with chords and melodies and then to work around that with your instrument in an improvisatory way and make something new. Didn't learn that. I also didn't learn any aspect of what we call these days music production, because guess what? When the Apple II computer came out and you could like make a little, you know, program that like repeated hello world going up and down the screen. I was already like in junior high school. Okay. So like we didn't have pro tools <laughs> pro tools was like way in the future at that point so you know if, if if i had wanted to like learn the uh the modern techniques at that time it would have been possible i would have only had to go from jackson to detroit where eminem was making his mark <laughs> i mean like i'm a basically a contemporary with eminem uh so it was possible it's just that my background was so focused on the you know the orchestral classical tradition that uh everything that i learned had to do with harmonies and music theory and playing you know symphonies basically 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think for me to um, kind of started off like playing the piano, like, you know, my parents like bought a piano and, you know, just kind of learned like how to like test it out, like see what to play. And it was kind of like one of those like electric, like keyboard slash piano type things where yeah. like, you know, like the keys, like the white keys would tend to like be colorized like if you're learning like a certain song. So if you're playing like we got some the people or... see it that way by the way yeah. when we start talking about christina jones she's one of the people on earth who actually see music with colors so it's very interesting that you had a piano with colors like that yeah and it was actually like auto sync to like learn like how to play like those certain things too so like you know you'd had to like learn how to test it out sometimes it would play like automatically for you sometimes mm-hmm. you'd have to like learn it on your own so sometimes you press one key, you press the other key too, and then, you know, it would work that way too. Um, I would have so- loved that as a kid, by the way. I mean, uh, the the most exciting electronic thing in my childhood was Pac-Man. <laughs> in, in the Howard Johnson's store, the restaurant. So when we'd go on family vacation, for example, uh, I'd always look for the Howard Johnson's because they would have Pac-Man. And if I was lucky... After we paid for dinner, there'd be a quarter left over and I could play one game of Pac-Man before we got in the car. So just cultural context here. That's how it was. We didn't have Game Boys or anything like that or whatever you people play yeah, these days. True. Um, I want to get into that like later on, like the whole Pac-Man thing. Um, but yeah, um, as far as like other stuff, I like learned to play the recorder like back in elementary school. And then I started off. That's playing... a good starting instrument. It is. Yeah pretty much and then i started off playing the trumpet in like middle school and then maybe like for one year in high school and that was it and um i think middle school like it was a good experience to like learn more about sheet music just the styling of like how to play like one note than the other and then like which notes you have to play so like if you're playing on like a treble clef versus playing on a on a bass clef like, you would realize, like, the major, like, differences. And then high school, like, we didn't have that much, like, you know, like, instrumental time. We just, like, learned, like, the basic formations of music. So we started off, like, reading, like, certain papers from how music was made, like, in the Chopin era, the Bach era, Mozart, and then got into some instrumental time. And before, like we performed like this choir thing like back then for like this like middle school like maybe like in the christmas time and i'd say it was worth it in that sense too i mean i thought we were just strictly playing our instruments but it was just like, a whole different thing but yeah it's interesting that you mentioned you know choir and all you know doing all these diverse instruments um as I, as I grow older, I have more of my life to look back on and play the revisionist game. What would my life had, have been like if I had done something different? Invest in Microsoft stock, you know, go meet Bill Gates, something like that. But no, when, when I think about the musical journey and I think, you know, if I had done something different, what would have it turned out to be like? Then I'm really actually somewhat regretful that I didn't learn to sing early on. And maybe learn a, a very a more contemporary instrument like you know electric bass. Uh, I can I can see myself as a young person being a, a bass player and a singer in a band, for example. Um, hello, Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I 
I, I, I would really like to go back in history to the eighties and, uh, you know, tell myself back then to sing, um, because I didn't think I could sing back then, but what uh, I probably couldn't, and I probably can't now, but what I've learned through trying to learn to sing on my own in the past few years is that no matter where you start, you can get a lot better at it if you practice, which is not surprising because that's the way most things in life work. You get much better at them if you practice them and, you, and musicians uh, practice a lot. And I learned how to practice from my musical studies. So I've been practicing singing and I would love to go back in history and let, I would just like to be Lionel Richie, by the way. If, I, if we ever do the eighties over again, I'm gonna be Lionel Richie. No doubt. Um, over, like, aside from like what you listened to, like back in China and from like home, like, did you have like any artists or sounds that you listened to throughout like your lifetime in that sense? Um, well, it's I'm really interesting in that respect. In that um, my core was strictly classical music, so the Beethoven's symphonies and stuff like that, the whole universe. Um, and my ambient influences was 80s radio. So like, if you want to hear what I listened to when I was growing up, it was basically top 40 80s music. So it was Madonna, Lionel Richie. It was, you know, Bruce Springsteen. It was Michael Jackson. <laughs> it was Cyndi Lauper. And, and those things actually have, even though I didn't pay much attention to them when I was growing up, because I was kind of like, that 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 music is clearly inferior to Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, even though I was a little bit like that. Uh, also, something that I got from my dad a little bit. Um, he's over it now. Uh, those that era of top forty pop music is really attractive to me now. I love it. I love going back and listening to the eighties. That's I, I can't help myself. <laughs> no doubt. Um... At what point, like in your life, did you start making music on your own? Like in that sense. Uh, so remember, I didn't learn to improvise and I never became a composer. So I only tried a couple times to write lyrics and I only tried a couple times to actually write songs and none of it worked out very well. So what I've been able to do as a creative musician has mostly been focused around enabling better musicians than myself to make their music at a very high level. And I started that in 2012, so quite late. And I started that also in the classical scene with Kimiko Ishizaka, who is my wife and who's a pianist. And we've done a number of projects together, making albums for her, uh, which I was the executive producer for. Um, and in those cases, I was not even really the artistic director so much. I was mostly the project manager in form of executive producer. Executive producers are really not well-defined term. And if you hear somebody use it, you have to ask them literally, what do you mean by that? Or you have no idea what they're talking about. For some people, it's just who pays the check. I did that as well. But in our case, it was who organizes everything, who makes the decisions, like who's the uh, recording engineer, where's the studio that we're going to do it, who listens the most to the, you know, the edits and the cuts that the engineers are making, who does the marketing, who does the promotion. For me, that's what executive producer means. It's like everything except sit down and play the instrument or do the specialized tasks along the way, like the recording engineer or the, the editor. So in, in none of the albums where 
I've been involved, have I been the one who was like working in pro tools, making cuts, but I was listening to everyone. I was listening to everyone and being the artistic director at some level. And that level of being an artistic director has increased over time to the point where with the Christina Jones album, I would say that uh, I, I, I was, you know, more important than executive producer. I was the artistic director because uh, every decision about all of the musicians who were chosen eventually came back to me. So we had some people helping with that, like the arranger, Corey Allen, actually had the context to the individual musicians but he was sending me samples of what they were doing and I was saying yes no no yes that but more like Pink Floyd and that but more like Jethro Tull and stuff like that I see I see what you mean and um in most cases too like I know since you weren't the one like that was like making the music you were just doing like the behind the scenes type stuff with like marketing and promotion. So to speak more on like the artists in general, did they have like a creative process like for making music? So like would Christina's process be different than Kamiko's or? Oh yes, it has to be. This is, this is almost a question that you don't need to ask because if you look inside yourself, uh, you, you can know even from your own self that everybody is, highly unique in this respect and maybe there are some things that different people do that look the same but at the core everybody's creative process is unique you can't even say very unique or extraordinarily unique or highly unique like I did you just you could just leave it at unique and let the the true meaning of the word stand nobody does it the same way yeah I know what you mean and um as far as like seeing like them like you know like being involved in the industry um how did you like immerse yourself like in the music industry you know like with releasing Kamiko's music and with Christina Christina's like music as well I'm a music industry outsider the music industry doesn't really like me very much so that's not uh an appropriate question to ask uh with Kimiko uh we gained recognition by basically being oppositional to the music industry. So for context on that, you have to understand that in 2012, that those were the years when the music industry, the RIAA, et cetera, were suing individuals for downloading files from the internet, uh, for using BitTorrent, for using Napster. Uh, you would read stories like somebody's mom got sued because their son downloaded something in their bedroom and listened to it. And then every, people just wanted something like Spotify, okay? They just wanted to be able to explore music and listen to the music that they wanted. They weren't trying to cheat people or steal people or, or make the millionaire musicians less millionaire. They were just loving music. And the industry was responding by breaking them and beating them as hard as it could. And uh, we didn't like that. <laughs> so what we did is we recorded uh, a, a, a piece, Box Goldberg Variations, back to classical. And we set the masters for that recording, which normally we would have a copyright on. We put them straight into the public domain. We said, anybody, anywhere on earth, from now until the end of time, can do anything with this music that you want, no restrictions. And it's really funny what some of the people have done. Um, <laughs> it's wonderful and funny. Uh, but that got a lot of attention. We got written about in major magazines like the New Yorker, 
okay, or Wired Magazine, or in Germany, the FAZ, or Heise DA. So we got really an extraordinary amount of coverage because it was quite a revolutionary idea to give up your copyright to a recording that you just made from day one. And, and we also used Kickstarter to fund that. So we had a very strong story. Help us set Bach free from the grips of the evil music industry. <laughs> like a lot of, you know, like hand-waving and hubris uh, involved with that. But people loved it because remember, the music industry was literally beating them with lawsuits at the time. Uh, and it was awful. And people basically hated the music industry uh, at, at, the, at the intellectual property protection level. Uh, and it, 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 the, yeah, there are lots of side stories there. So uh, that kind of put me on a trajectory to be outside of the music industry. I've not uh, really found my way back into it. There's no like warm, hey, you're one of us from Warner Brothers moment on my history. No. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Um, yeah, I remembered like back then, like that whole like downloading situ- like that whole download situation with Napster and you know zip torrents and everything like that was a major problem back in like the nineties and two thousand two. Like when you had like people like Lars Ulrich and like all these like industry heads, you know, were against you know people like download downloading their music because like you know the- you know imagine like working hard in the studio and then basically your album being like downloaded for free in which you expected others to pay like for some people like you do have to understand that there are also like cultural context into like buying music because you can listen to music on the street for free or like find it on youtube so what's like the actual difference like downloading like you know like a certain like mainstream song like on youtube in that sense too but like if we look into like context into that whole idea of like Bandcamp and you know artists like selling like independent artists selling their music on like other platforms and expecting you know that certain support it has like a weird like cognitive like dis- dissonance towards like what Lars Ulrich was saying and what these like in- industry heads are talking about because both groups are promoting people to support them to buy their music, like buy their merch, and you know, buy, like get like a ticket for like their upcoming show, like on tour and all that. So it has like that whole like interesting understanding too, because both groups want the same thing, but both have like different aspects to like how they view like the industry in that sense too, as to where like independent and like unsigned artists, you know, are usually against like the music industry and the politics beyond it while like label heads will do like anything for like the industry you know like they'll do anything what it takes to stay like in the public eye or in that sense either oh, yeah. in music or in entertainment so and and i i i think that sometimes the techniques might even be slightly underhanded but um fortunately uh, no hitmen have shown up at my door <laughs> uh, and i've given up hope of ever being signed by sony or anything uh it's it's not going to happen and uh in fact you know with um the decentralized web and DeFi and uh, nfts and crypto um actually the industry is going to go through another tumultuous change probably on the order of magnitude of you know the cd or streaming or itunes 
uh, and it's starting this year and you're seeing it, the signs of it uh, and people can't even begin to imagine what's coming. They can't. I, it's, it's mind blowing. Um, I've been looking into what's possible with NFTs uh, and it's much, 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 much deeper and more um, spectacular than, you know, collecting some crypto kitties or just like, you know, getting access to a track. It's, that, that's not the future of this technology. The future of this technology is go, going to change the ownership model of music licensing, basically. So it'll be fun. It'll be, I can't predict exactly where it's going either. I'm not the Oracle. I just know that, you know, the, the, the protectionist uh, aspect of the music industry that thinks that it was good in the past, I want it to be like that again. It's as useless as me thinking I'm going to be Lionel Richie in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. I mean, if they're gonna like push to make like certain people that were famous from like 2008 like relevant again, like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry, then you know they can do that too. But I do feel that like even with certain people who want to get into the industry, like in the you know like at, in a label or like in that whole like mainstream sense, like you could do it off the strength of your own music and you don't need to be signed to like a label or anything like that just own your masters like own like whatever yeah it's really hard and very unlikely that you'll succeed statistically seeing you're probably going to fail you're going to spend all your money and all your time and be very frustrated statistically not to discourage anybody out there because it's your passion and you should follow your passion and i'm glad that i always did but it's really hard. I mean, how many thousands of tracks are uploaded to Spotify every day? How do you get anybody's attention in that world? It's incredibly hard. So, and, and I say that feeling like I'm a an utter failure in doing so, even though I've had bigger resources and more time and some good ideas and some bad ideas along the way to try to do that for the music that I'm trying to promote. I feel that it's so hard getting people's attention that it, it, it's like the least fun thing in life to do, to try to get people's attention, to pay attention to your music. And if you don't get their attention, you make the music and it dies a death of obscurity. And that's what's happening to so many people right now. They're making so much music and nobody's listening to it. Okay. I read a sad statistic about a certain percentage of tracks on Spotify that don't even have any listens okay <laughs> like somebody took the time to put it on there and then nobody came okay so <laughs> i love the indie music story and if you cream off the top of the crop and say oh they all made it and you know like you got this group of 100 people that you could point to right now who have made it guess what there are 20,000 people 30,000 people 50,000 people beneath them who are not making it at all and are consigned to obscurity so just so if you're out there and you know you're like thinking about how you're going to spend your time absolutely make the music absolutely invest in your skills and explore the music and just know that the joy that you get from doing that is probably the payment that you're going to get and if you pin your happiness to any sort of social recognition for it or validation from other people that they that you've made good music or that they like your music or anything like that you're setting yourself for, up for frustration because it's a shitty industry it's horrible yeah exactly in that sense um i think that was just kind of like the good start to 
speak on. Um, just moving on to our next question. So I know that uh, Kimiko, Kimiko was you, like, is your wife, and you know you worked with uh, Christina like from the start, like from uh, before Kimiko, like after Kimiko. Uh, so, but how did you guys like meet? Like, you know, just you, Christina, and Kimiko, like in that sense. Well, you have to, I mean, if, if I'm going to tell that story, then you, you have to indulge me to reveal something more personal about it. And that Kimiko and I had been married for nearly 20 years um, at a point uh, about three, year, three years ago uh, when I decided to leave. I, tried, I decided that it wasn't working and that I had my own frustrations and frustrations with her and frustrations with the situation in life. And I basically packed my bags and left. And I began to start a new life somewhere else. And uh, we were separated for most of a year. Uh, And that was obviously a very hard thing for both of us, but especially for Kimiko, who didn't necessarily see it coming or expect that I would do that. And in that time, she went through many different phases of dealing with loss. Okay. So uh, she really believed that she had lost me. I, I tried to make it very clear that I had really moved out. There was no fixing it. There was no getting back together. It was over. Okay. I was very adamant <laughs> about that. And she took it to heart and she basically was processing that loss. And part of what she did in processing that loss was she wrote songs. And she wrote songs basically to me without hope, without intention uh, at first that anything would change. And at some point she actually sat down and sang them for me. So we, we stayed in contact. There was no animosity. We weren't fighting. Uh, and I, we were, you know, actually still working on a music project together. So um, we were friends, so to speak. Um, so we were seeing each other in that context. And she sang these songs for me. She sat down on the piano and like, we just both bawled our eyes out and cried. And I realized uh, all sorts of things about how I felt that had been buried, but they came up with this music that she had just written and had performed for me. And yeah, I still walked out the door and went back to where I was setting up my new life. Um, And it took several months and more songs that she wrote with increasing intention of having an effect on me to uh, actually convince me that we should move forward together. And I came back to her. Um, I left what I had been building uh, elsewhere, uh, which was very difficult and painful and came back and we have spent since been moving forward together. So we never ended the marriage. Uh, We now have a child, which is new, which is wonderful. And uh, when, when, when that became clear that that's how we were going to do things, then I became obsessed with producing these songs, uh, the songs on Christina Jones, You Are My Compass. So those are the songs that Kimiko sang to me. And uh, I felt that they were so good and so powerful. And the backstory was interesting that it would be a crime against humanity to not bring those out and have people hear them. So we began looking or somebody to sing them. And I am going to tell you that I literally made contact with over a thousand singers. I used LinkedIn, I used SoundCloud, I used YouTube, I used my network. And there are singers out there who, if they see this, they'll be like, we were in contact. And for whatever reason, whether it was on their side or our side, it 
none of it worked out. We listened to the samples and we just weren't convinced or they couldn't imagine working with us or they were too busy or too famous or they never got back or whatever. It didn't work out. And that went on for a long time. A thousand singers is a lot of singers. And uh, at some point we were watching a video at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. Um, so January-ish, February-ish, 2020. And it was a video of college students from Berkeley Conservatory who made one of those remote videos singing what the world needs now is love. And it's a beautiful video. It's, uh, you should definitely go see it. And for 1.7 seconds, this girl up in the corner in the screen this big said, we don't, we have corn fields and wheat fields enough. <laughs> that was her line. <laughs> that was it. And we were like, oh, her. It's got to be her. So we found her. We uh, looked at the credits at the end of the video and they scrolled on for like 10 hours because there are a lot of students at Berkeley and she only had, you know, like this tiny segment. And we found and we Googled every one of them because it didn't say, hey, cornfields and wheat fields, Christina Jones. No, we had to Google every singer on that list and look at their picture and listen to them to see. And it took like hours to find Christina Jones. And then Kimiko found her on Facebook and started chatting with her. And Christine was like, Woo, weird. <laughs> and we had to very respectfully make this, you know, beginning of an overture to her and a relationship with her to get her to be interested in what we were doing. And finally, she looked Kimiko up and saw that she was her real artist. Um, we shared some of the songs with her. We actually made a demo version of Free Completely Free that I produced. Nobody heard it. <laughs> we did as a, as a remote video, you know, like four corners of the screen, four musicians, bass, drum, piano, Christina. And after that, we knew that we were going to make the album together. All during the pandemic, we've never met Christina in person. And how we made the album after that was also fairly remarkable but I mean to get to that point with somebody Christina who's never made an album before who's basically she was living you know with her mother in St. Louis during the pandemic couldn't go to school to have like the people from Germany call her and say hey make our album I mean that must have been like a thunderbolt I don't know lightning bolt thunder clap <laughs> thunderbolt's a mixed metaphor yeah, nah, I know what you mean. And it's interesting, too, because um, I think, Christina, you, you mentioned that uh, she was, like, on American Idol for a bit, too. Um, so how was that, uh, like, work with, like, an American Idol artist like Christina, like, in that sense, too? Because... Well, I mean, she was on American Idol. She made it into the top 40. She met Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie features very heavily in this podcast. <laughs> she also likes Lionel Richie. That binds us. <laughs> We're both Lionel Richie fans. Um, but, you know, she wasn't really ready for that at that time in her life. And that didn't lead to very much for her. Um, and it was exciting and formative for her. But in terms of launching a career, you know, probably helped her get into Berkeley. But you know, the, the American Idol story, while it's super exciting, it was basically only a glimpse into the future for her uh, and her potential. And if, when I've gone and listened to the American Idol, and she'll say it too in her interviews, she wasn't ready for that. Um, and in the three years or four years since that's happened, she's blossomed as an artist. She's 
turned into a completely different singer. She's developed so much. The transformation in her singing in that time is remarkable. And we could hear that in that video in 2020. Um, and you can, and, and from that video in 2020 and the things that she was putting on Instagram to what she recorded for our album, for You Were My Compass, that's also a transformation. So I believed in Christina from day one. Uh, but when I heard the, the, the first takes coming out of the studio, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe what an artist we had in the studio. I couldn't believe that we'd actually been lucky enough to find somebody who could sing like that. That was amazing. Yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean. Um, and, you know, like I read something, like I was like reading on Kimiko's like Wikipedia that she used to be like an Olympic like weightlifter. Um, yeah, she's still really strong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that's Kimiko for you. And she sets her mind to doing something. She doesn't no half measures for Kimiko. And she started when she was like 30 or late 20s, which is when most Olympic weightlifters are retiring. And she still went on to be second place in the German national championships, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, I wish I had more footage and videos from back then. Uh, it wasn't, we didn't have iPhones back then. Remember, you know, we're old. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's not so much footage from back then, but, uh, she was pretty remarkable. She's tall, uh, relatively tall, which is also a, an anti-trait for weightlifting, but she's just super determined. And when she learns something, she puts her entire heart and soul in it. And she was a successful competitive weightlifter. I see what you mean. Um, as far as like the executive uh, producer situation, um, how did that come about? Like, did you just like joined like in that sense, like when they decided to work on the projects or? Oh, no, 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 no. You have to understand these projects happen because I decide they happen. Oh, true. There is no force in the universe that brought these projects into earth other than my will. Oh, true. Chemical played them and it's her genius that you hear musically but without me those don't exist christina jones too that project was clawed from the granite of the universe by my fingernails chip by chip over two years and that's what it means for me to be an executive producer oh, i see what you mean um and i know like with the js box situation um that was like the sole like artist that you know, Kimiko like worked on like playing for the books and how does someone like J.S. Bach played a role like in your life and what oh, was his, and what was his impact uh, for you when composing uh, the books, you know, in that sense? So Bach is interesting because he is, in my estimation, the best musician that humanity has ever produced. And anybody can come and prove me wrong. <laughs> Great time for a debate. But no, in my opinion, Bach is not only wrote the, the highest quality music given his context at the time, but also throughout the time ensuing, but also is extraordinarily prolific and extraordinarily influential. You mentioned Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga um, uh, quotes Bach, uh, one of the pieces that Kimiko uh, recorded at the beginning of Bad Romance. Um, that's Bach all the way influencing everybody from the Beatles to Lady Gaga. Everybody along the way has uh, fallen under his influence in Western tonal music that, you know, includes all classical jazz and, uh, you know, popular music that we've been talking about. Not 
African, not Asian. Of course, that's a little bit different, although it's influential there. But, you know, Middle Eastern music also, you know, different stuff, right? But uh, for European American music, um, Bach has been, uh, whether people know it or not, he's been an extraordinarily formative force, but also for me in particular, Kimiko introduced him to me. It sounds weird because I went to school and college for eight years uh, and, uh, and have classical music degrees. But um, when Kimiko actually got me to listen to Bach in the right way, long enough with enough intent, then I realized what was there. And now it's a lifetime worth of discovery to find out everything there is to know about his music. There's so much of it. You would need uh, how do I how do I frame this for you? Bach wrote so much music, and so much of it is so famous that it's the most famous piece in its genre. Okay, for cello, for choir, for orchestras, for piano, for violin, for everybody at the time. Okay, he wrote so much music that a professional music copyist would have to spend their entire career just copying it. Okay, think about that for a second. He wrote music so fast that a professional copyist would spend their entire career just keeping up. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, aside from his great achievement, for me, it opened up a new world. It was close enough to the Beethoven symphonies that it's not really a new genre. It's just a subgenre in the classical music space that I already loved, but I hadn't ever really listened to it the right way or enough. And then when I did, I realized that it was enough music that it would occupy me for the rest of my life getting to know it. And it's a great feeling when you when, when you like open a door to a universe that you can walk into and it's like, I like it here. <laughs> and it's big and it's like great. So that was a great moment. That's how Bach influenced me. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And uh, recently there was like this meme, like sort of like on Twitter, sort of like on social media on like like a hip hop uh, Mount Rushmore or like a music Mount Rushmore, or like a television Mount, like Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. in that sense. So who would you put like in your Mount Rushmore in terms of like classical music in that sense? Classical music, me, my tastes. Oh, Bach, Beethoven. Schubert. Then it gets really hard because, like, you know, uh, there are like four places Bach, Beethoven, Schubert. Then that, that fourth place, it's you're going to have to like rotate that between Tchaikovsky and Brahms and Richard Strauss and whoever I'm listening to at the moment, because Mozart, of course. Um, there are too many. Okay. But Bach. Beethoven and Schubert never leave. Yeah. Like, I know for me, too, like, I do listen to classical music uh, here and there. Uh, So, like, for me, like, I would put it, like, with Bach, with Mozart, with Beethoven, and then with Chopin. Because I know Chopin, like, he did develop... Chopin. Chopin, like, he did develop, like, a good sense of music and books, like, at that time, too. And, you know... I love Chopin. Yeah. Like, it's like not a lot of people like talk a lot, talk about him that much, like within the legacy of music in that sense. But he did like lead away. Depends on whom you're talking to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I know like some people, like when they recognize like classical music's from, you know, a non traditional like standpoint, like in a mainstream sense, you know, people are going to recognize Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, 
chopping like for people who are so immersed in the classical music like it'll be something similar to like what you mentioned in that sense too so i think chopin's actually a great and sorry to interrupt you but i think chopin is actually a great entry point for anybody list wanting to listen to classical music that's c-h-o-p-i-n chopin and uh, he wrote primarily piano music and that has some advantages to people listening uh, with a modern ear because it's usually very close and personal and only one instrument, not a huge orchestra and a huge orchestra hall that's overwhelming. You don't know what you're listening to uh, or opera singing with a huge vibrato and you've never heard somebody sing like that. Um, Chopin's really accessible because it's um, the period of romance uh, of music is the romantic period. And it's actually sounds romantic. It sounds very personal and emotional. And Chopin was also a little bit emo. He was a little bit depressed a lot of the time, but he was also this great melodist and uh, his harmonies are unbelievable. And what he does in every single piece is he delivers an emotional payload. That's like, ah, ah, and that's great. And that's a great feeling. And if you can get yourself into that and experience that, you'll want it over and over and over again. And start with the nocturnes, Chopin nocturnes. That's my tip of the day. No doubt. And um, aside from the music from Christina and uh, Kimiko, uh, how was the impact like when like the music like was like released? Was there like a lot of like recognition that people noticed like within those projects or there was from the open Goldberg variations in particular because uh, of the attitude and the model that we used with the crowdfunding and the public domain aspect of it. We repeated that with the well-tempered clavier and with the uh, art of the fugue, which are also pieces by Bach and uh, it had diminishing uh, influence because we had done it before. So you can't repeat yourself too often. Um, it wasn't repeating ourselves in terms of the artistic creation because those recordings actually got better and better. And Kimiko's best work is um, either the well-tempered clavier or the art of the fugue, depending on what your preferences are. Okay. But she developed as a pianist in that time and her understanding of Bach developed in that time. And with the, with the art of the fugue, she actually completed it because Bach died before he finished it or it was lost. And she completed the unfinished part as a composer. And that was actually a nice elision and transition to her next album, which was then um, called new me, which is a solo piano album uh, of her own works, which combined the ideas of Bach and classical music with jazz, which she had started to study. Uh, so those four piano albums were the, the four that Kimiko and I did with each other before Christina Jones, You Were My Compass. So that's the fifth major album that I've been the executive producer for over these 10 years. All right. Um, just to get on to our last part. So we have a part three, like music and other topics. We just finished uh, part one and part two, like one with the humble beginnings and the other with the music and everything else so this is just more on a general like standpoint so um what are your thoughts on like the music that's like relevant in like the mainstream today like do you have any thoughts on that i think that um it's changing so fast what's relevant and to whom it's relevant and what the mainstream is, is completely dependent on where you are on earth 
and we can see the entire earth in its entirety uh, from our point of view now with the internet and it all looks bigger and smaller at the same time, that it's a really hard question to, to answer. And what I will tell you is that I think that the, the freshest, nicest, newest thing that I've seen in the music industry is actually TikTok and the short form videos. And even though you, they butcher the songs by taking just a minute of them or 10 seconds of them or talking over them, it doesn't matter. TikTok's about having fun and having fun with music is what it's all about to begin with. So I, you know, I, I get lost on TikTok watching what people are doing with their dances and their choreography. Uh, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to like link yourself and something that you're doing yourself with a music or a sound that you really appreciate and that's meaningful to you. And I've also focused my promotion of Christina Jones a lot on TikTok and Instagram because I love it when people listen to it and then react to it in a way that's unique to themselves, to their brand, to their presentation. However, they whatever they hear in that, they'll show me when they make their video on TikTok they'll show what they hear in that music. And to me, that's super valuable these days. And it's, to me, the most interesting phenomenon in the music industry that's come about in, 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 the, in, in recent years. The only thing that I think will be equally big in the future is, like I said, the influence of the NFTs and the way that people start to interact with those and how they will uh, piece by piece create a new music industry and the traditional music industry will start to slip inside of that and assimilate part of that. And some of it will be Warner and Sony and some of it won't be, and it'll be totally distributed and it, it'll be great. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, for me, I do feel like that, like social media and other forms of like technology are like your new radio and like your new like magazine in that sense too. So if we can compare like Spotify and Apple music and Bandcamp are like the new like iTunes and like radio in that sense too, because who really listens to the radio nowadays besides people who choose not to have an aux, an aux cord or people that don't have like an aux cord, like in their car or like an aux cord system. Like that's like one major difference as well, because Spotify and Apple Music, you can like choose the artists who you want to listen to with like either like if you have to deal with ads or with no ads in that sense too. Um, but yeah, like you don't have to like find out like you don't have to listen to the uh, top 40 artists like in, tra in transition because in radio, like the music transitions from one artist to the other. Whereas like in Spotify or Apple Music, you can just pick the artists that you just want to like listen to and you can listen to them for like all day, like 24 seven, or you could have like a playlist. It's not like when I grew up, when I grew up, if you wanted to hear a song, you called the radio station and then you waited for them to play it. <laughs> and there were times when I was growing up that we would call the radio station and request the same song 20 times in one day. And I'm not kidding. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually uh, tried to do that once uh, for like this uh, R&B artist, like in Toronto based radio station. But I think they only had like top 40 because, you know, the artists that I had had the new music. So like they didn't have yeah. that other time too. Uh, but yeah, um, like even if you like think about it, like YouTube is strictly like the new like artist and repertoire, like even like TikTok too. Because when you see like one person doing like a YouTube co cover or someone like performing on TikTok, like a certain song, you know, 
like you don't have to go to a like a record label or like to someone and give them like your demo tapes like back then because back then you'd had to like, give your demo tape of like whatever tracks you did and then they'd pick you know some people can watch a video and when they see it they would be like that's the one right there that's the video right there we need to sign this artist or we need to put this artist like in a similar platform and you know it worked for a lot of people who used youtube to their advantage in that sense too and then if we talk about like even like video interviews and like you know watching interviews on like platforms like breakfast club or zane low or all these other media platforms they're like your modern day like magazine like as well too like definitely and i've noticed that it caused like a lot of differences between the reduction of sales like in radio and in magazine because you know no one's going to buy like a magazine or like listen to the radio anymore unless like they have to in that sense too and it's an it's an interesting feeling because you know what could be the youtube of the future could be something else as well too so we don't know what would happen because life changes like day by day and with the amount of technology and without with, with the amount of scientific like discovery and formation of like media like in a digital world you see this like everlasting change happen like in our very own eyes as to where you see stuff like radio and like magazines become like entirely existent unless like that other demographic still purchasing still like tuning in in that sense too so yeah I think you hit a lot of interesting points, but uh, I want to I want to take it up a level, um, and I also have to say I need to go and end the broadcast soon. Uh, um, so this might be the closing thing that I say, unfortunately. But when I hear what you're saying, um, it reminds me very strongly of a very prevalent theme in my life as an older person. I'm going to keep grabbing that mantle and wearing it. Uh, and as a parent, you also think about this, it's mortality. You think about it as a human, any human thinks about their own mortality, but that grows and grows on you as you age and as you have dependence on you, okay? So I'm thinking with my son, how long will I be there for him? How will I take care of him until that point and beyond? And in a way, uh, the, the, the changing of technologies like YouTube and radio and their impermanence and how you can't count on the way that we do things now being the way that we do things tomorrow. And it's changing faster and faster all the time. So that's even more so now than it was before. So there's an impermanence, a feeling of impermanence. And you start to think, what's my legacy? Uh, what am I leaving behind as a musician, as an executive producer? Um, what's going to happen to Kimiko's open Goldberg variations in a hundred years. Who's going to listen to you or my compass in a hundred years, a thousand years. Is there a sense of permanence? How do I transcend my mortality? Chopin did it. (laughs) Beethoven did it. They did it by writing great music on paper. And that paper survived long enough that enough copies of it exist that now it's recorded and it will never go away just because of the quality. But how do I do that? How do I, transcend my own mortality and assure the legacy of my music beyond my lifetime. And and those are actually the interesting topics that I'm thinking of and why I've mentioned NFTs uh, quite often 
we're going to be looking at the permanence of music in our next projects. And uh, you reminded me that totally of mentioning all these technologies like radio that is not as relevant now as it used to be and will eventually not be relevant at all. And, and YouTube might not be either, although it's going to be around for a long time. Don't don't get worried that they're turning YouTube off. They're not. <laughs> no doubt. Um, so, uh, Robert, uh, thank you uh, for coming by on the fourth episode of TLOI Talks. Um, it was a pleasure having you. And, you know, before uh, you go, um, I just want to find out if if you want to like if you have like any social media or anything else would you like to like explain to the fans and like where they could like find you on social media or other like platforms if they can? Yeah. Well, I am Robert Douglas uh, with two S's. Um, people who misspell my name with one S, they always get the reprimand that I have two S's on my ass. Um, there's a story behind that as well, but uh, I'm, I'm really only on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram I despise Facebook. I uh, actually think we need a thing like Facebook, but it shouldn't be Facebook. Facebook should burn. Um, so uh, I would rather actually direct people listening to Christina Jones and You Are My Compass, actually, because uh, Kimiko and I are a little bit similar in that respect in that we think that everything about us that people need to know is in the work that we're doing. So if you want to hear what Robert Douglas is as an executive producer, don't look for Robert Douglas on the internet. Look for Christina Jones. You were my compass. All right. Sounds good. And uh, this is uh, Joshua, also known as Yashu, signing off on episode four of TLOI Talks. And have a good day, everyone. Thank you. Bye.